Love It or Leave It is brought to you by Angels Envy. Envy is commonly regarded as a vice, but it can be a good thing. Envy can be a catalyst for creation, inspiring the world to raise the bar. And Angels Envy is a bourbon that is worth the envy. Angels Envy bends the rules. It's a little different from all the other bourbons out there because Angels Envy is the pioneer of secondary finishing in bourbon. Angels Envy is finished in port barrels, which adds a layer of complexity to the whiskey and gives it a unique and approachable flavor. Plus, Angels Envy is one of the first full production urban distilleries in downtown Louisville. And whether it's for someone special or to bring to a housewarming party, Angels Envy makes the perfect gift. These angels are so, they have so much envy with its unique bottle design. Angels Envy bourbon finished in port barrels is sure to be the envy of any bar cart too. Look for Angels Envy bourbon finished in port barrels. Please drink responsibly. Copyright 2024, Angels Envy bottled by Louisville Distilling Company, Louisville, Kentucky. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Love It or Leave It. I'm John Lovett. I'm here with Akilah Hughes. Hey, what up? And we're going to take you on a journey. A journey through clips of <laughs> old episodes of Love It or Leave It. <laughs> a journey through literally the show. Love It or Leave It is taking a couple weeks off, and then we will be back for Radio City on September 13th. There are still some tickets left. Crooked.com slash events. But today, we're going to walk you through some of our favorite moments. Oh, uh, yeah. Memory lane. Do you see that fade done away? Um is embroiled in a lawsuit because she was so vicious on the set of this play on the uh, like behind the scenes during this play like she would just refer to her assistant as this little homosexual boy <laughs> and the headline just stopped me in my tracks it just said Faye Dunaway calls gay assistant little homosexual boy colon lawsuit <laughs> what a what a what a window into a world every once in a while you see eight words in a row that just yeah. describe a tremendously fascinating event I, like, which honestly, was life on that play the best part about it too though is that like obviously the person who is <laughs> bringing the lawsuit is the one who was called that but everyone online immediately was like me about me love it i wish someone would call me a little gay boy like whatever <laughs> i, I uh, it does sound as though uh faye dunaway was quite a tyrant yeah i mean you know i think it takes a lot to sink a broadway show based on the producers <laughs> Maybe in the end she was actually trying to fuck Moonlight. Yeah. Ooh. You know, Deep. something to think about. <laughs> something to think about. Let's start. In this episode, on July 29th, we had Monica Ramirez, Trayvon Free, Tawny Newsom, and uh, we went through what some of the candidates said about comfort foods. <laughs> they did a terrible job. They were terrible. They were really bad. None of them knew what comfort meant. <laughs> <laughs> they were like, what I'm most comfortable is when I'm shitting nails. <laughs> I love to eat carrots. I like applause. That's comforting. Is me this a, a food? Is this concrete a food? <laughs> <laughs> Let's roll the clip. It has landed on candidate comfort food. Now, I was off last week, okay? And I was trying to disconnect, all right? Spent some time away from the laptop. From the tweets. But then I did see that an intrepid reporter had asked many of the Democratic candidates for what their comfort food is. You know, what do they eat? What is their comfort food? You know, after a hard day, you want to eat something gross? What are they eating? You know, to make themselves feel better. How are they going to love themselves with food? What are the things they use to eat their feelings? Something every human does something we all do 
And I was excited to find out the answers, the relatable answers that would show us that these are, yeah, they're politicians, but they're people just like us. Here are some of the answers. Cory Booker's comfort food was veggies. <laughs> Boo. What are you talking about? No, it isn't. No, it isn't. It's not. And you know what? Yeah, you're vegan, and you like all the great vegans, you make us aware of it. I live in Los Angeles, all right? There's plenty of vegan comfort food in this city. There's vegan macaroni and cheese. There's vegan meatloaf. They make anything vegan now. It is 2019. We can wield God's creation into unholy food items. Meat made of cashews, it's possible. It's possible. <laughs> Veggies. That's what happens when you don't have a black son. <laughs> To wit, Tulsi Gabbard said vegan cupcakes. I'm going to say acceptable. Better or work, any kind of fast food. Acceptable, good answer. I would have liked a more specificity, but you know what? With Beto, we're, we're working our way up. <laughs> Steve Bullock, who was denied a place in the debate, he said a good hamburger. I'll count it. Seth Moulton, a burger. Great answer. John Delaney, grilled chicken sandwich from McDonald's, no sauce, grilled not fried, but he said this, two of them. And you know what? <laughs> I respect that. I respect that. Because any true McDonald's connoisseur knows you get a meal and one little thing. <laughs> Amy Klobuchar said a baked potato, uh, which, as many noted online, you can throw at people. Uh, Michael Bennett said an Italian sausage sandwich at Passkey in Pueblo, Colorado. I'll take it. Bill de Blasio, pulled pork. I'll take it. Andrew Yang, kind bars. Fuck you. Uh, <laughs> kind bars are the veggies of the bar community. John Hickenlooper said little bowls of M&Ms or mints. So, way to go, Loop. You got the weirdest fucking answer. <laughs> Little bowls. Like, what a window into another world. Like, how did you make this answer sound so fucking rich? <laughs> Little bowls? Like, oh, I'm constantly coming across Little bowls. Like, <laughs> of M&M's. Weird. Jay Inslee said, it was M&M's, but I've taken an oath now to lay off the M&M's to maintain belt security. Uncle Jay. I'll go through all of them. I don't care. Bernie Sanders said, last time out, we did a trip to the West Coast, and I gained three pounds in four days, so it's too much comfort food. You know what? It's not an answer, but it's charming. <laughs> Marion Williamson said, I have no comfort food. <laughs> <laughs> fucking A-plus answer. She's like, you fucking earthlings and your inability to manage your human emotions. <laughs> Because when you're Marianne Williamson, every meal is uncomfortable. Yes. <laughs> Pete Buttigieg said, beef jerky. Come on, Pete. <laughs> beef jerky is not comfort food. It's not. It's like the opposite of comfort food. It's what you're supposed to eat on a horse. <laughs> comfort food is what you have when you get back from the week of being on the horse eating beef jerky. It's the stew and the bowl at the ranch. <laughs> to weave a tale about it. Tim Ryan said, I'm an ice cream guy. Kirsten Gillibrand said, a glass of whiskey at the end of the night. So, but this is what I mean. It's like, this is the Gillibrand candidate problem. 
Almost, but a little off. You're like, I get it. All right, you want a drink, fine. But that wasn't the question. Are you evading the question? Elizabeth Warren said chips and guacamole. Ah, you know what? That's bias. That's bias. It's fine, but it's not great. It's not comfort food. It's not comfort food. This is California, John. Also, Chip is very upset with you Chip, right now. <laughs> Chip, the person Chip blew is blew a gasket. <laughs> Kamala Harris said French fries. Good answer. Normal. Fine. Get the job done. A little cautious, but we'll take it. I would like to... Now, Joe Biden just didn't respond. That's his strategy, and it's working. Uh, I would like to do the two worst answers. One was Julian Castro, who said iced tea. <laughs> the fuck? It's not a food. <laughs> it's a beverage. It's a beverage. Ah, oh, you know, when I've had a bad day and I want to kind of, you know, chill on the couch and watch the movie, I have a big bowl of iced tea. <laughs> and then Eric Swalwell said, it's really a comfort coffee. My favorite coffee is a mocha. Is this how we find out that Democratic candidates chew their drinks? <laughs> like, is it... <laughs> And I only, <laughs> yeah, they're chewing their fucking drinks. Eric Swalwell was beamed from like 1994 when he had like just discovered the coffee house scene. You know, he's like, a mocha. Someone was playing an acoustic guitar. <laughs> My comfort mood is a mocha. You're not going to win the Midwest with that shit. <laughs> Every time Love It or Leave It or Pod Save America goes to the Midwest, I gain eight pounds. Not three, not five. I gain eight fucking pounds. You cannot communicate with these people if your comfort food is a cafe latte. Or veggies, Corey. It is unacceptable. Shame on all of you. What would your comfort food be? Oh, wow. Let's judge you, sir. I'm going to tell you a story about what it really means to have comfort food. <laughs> and it's going to a pizza place in West Hollywood alone, ordering the pizza, eating the pizza, walking out of the pizza parlor, realizing it was next door to a Five Guys, walking into the Five Guys, getting a cheeseburger fully fucking loaded, eating that cheeseburger. All right? You don't come at me about comfort food. Love it, 2020. Next up, after the earthquakes in California, I decided to sit at my computer and develop a new scale to replace the current version of the earthquake scale, which is logarithmic. And so I harangued a legit seismologist from Caltech. Who was excited about this prospect or thought you were a complete doofus? I think it was a mix. Uh, he was a mix. He was also a hot seismologist. Ooh. So let's go to an episode with Andy Richter, Riri Cheney, and Aaron Ryan. And for the record, scientists also like this idea. So take that, seismologist <laughs> Menendrine Meyer. So these were my first, I think, significant earthquakes as a Californian. I have not grown up in this place, this wonderful place that shakes every once in a while <laughs> in a kind of deep and profound way. But now that I'm here... The Richter scale, it's not intuitive because it's a 6.4 and a 7.1. 
all the news reports it as a pair of earthquakes, right? That's just the natural way we talk about it. And yes, we know that there's something involving logarithms. And we find out later in the report that a 7.1 is actually five times as much sinking as a 6.4. But it's still covered as a pair of earthquakes because the measure isn't intuitive. If somebody crashed into your car at 10 miles an hour, and the next day, they crashed into your car at 50 miles an hour. You would definitely not say, wow, I was really buffeted by a pair of car accidents. <laughs> You'd say, holy shit, that guy yesterday that tapped my car, he fucked my shit up today. Because it's intuitive. 50 is five times as much as 10. So the opacity of these numbers bothers me. It bothers me as someone who is new to being in an earthquake zone all the time. <laughs> but I am not an expert. And I kind of thought it would be cool if I could maybe ask a seismologist about this. And here's the cool thing. We have this show. So there's a seismologist here who's going to help me figure out what we're going to do about this logarithmic scale. I may ask some other questions as well, but I'll probably keep bringing it back to this. Please welcome to the stage seismologist and researcher at Caltech, Menendrine Meyer. Hi, so you're a seismologist. Yes. So why do we use a scale where every point represents an increase tenfold of the amount of shaking from the number before? Well, because earthquakes come in a lot of different sizes, so you have tiny earthquakes, such as where the rough is just you know, a few inches, and we can detect those with good instruments. And then the big one in the San Andreas Fault is going to be hundreds of miles long. Um, and so if you had just a regular scale, like the one you use for measuring height, then you'd say, well, the foreshock was magnitude 0.003, and the main shock was magnitude 257,658. That's not much more intuitive, is it? Oh, interesting. You think it's not? <laughs> hey, everybody. So boil it down. Just... Buckle up. Next slide. <laughs> Sir, thank you for being here. For those listening at home, I'm going to do my best to explain this to all of you. But I have invented a new scale for earthquakes, and I am trying it out without having talked to literally anyone to an actual scientist on a show. Let's do it. On the left, we have the current logarithmic magnitude moment scale. It runs from zero to 10, all right? Zero is the earth is not moving. 10 is the craziest fucking earthquake in history. 9.5 roughly is the biggest earthquake ever recorded. Is that right? That's right. Okay. So we, on the right, we have a new scale. I've named it after uh, a scientist named Meyer, who is the first scientist to say yes to being the seismologist on this show, because it's you. Uh, so I agree that there is a problem with the fact that earthquakes come in little tiny bits and huge scary things. But I have a solution, okay? I have a solution. We're going to name a Meyer is going to be equivalent to a magnitude 5 earthquake, okay? All right. One kilometer long. It's pretty good. It's a pretty good earthquake, okay? Now, if an earthquake like what we had the other day hits, like a 6.4, that's gonna, we're going to go up the scale to around 25 Myers, right? Because that's 20 times more forceful than the 5, right? Because we're going to set our, we're gonna set our scale at a 1 out of 5 because I recognize that tiny earthquakes are very tiny, big earthquakes are very big. Now, what do we do about these huge earthquakes? I have a solution for that too. Once we hit a magnitude 8 earthquake, guess what? Welcome to a Mega Meyer. <laughs> Okay? 
The biggest earthquake ever recorded was 32 megamires. All right? That was the 9.5 that hit Alaska based on Wikipedia because, again, I did this alone over the break because I got scared because my house shook. <laughs> and they didn't tell you it was in Chile. No. Oh, was, that, was it in Chile, the biggest ever? I thought it was in Alaska. Second biggest. Okay, all right. America doesn't always have the biggest one. <laughs> sorry, sorry. This fucking guy. <laughs> so, back to the scale. Now, you're right. Some earthquakes are really tiny. A one or two on the new scale. Guess what? I'm introducing something. It's called the Millimire. <laughs> so now, so look. We have a 6.4 we had a 7.1. What if the news said, hey, guys, there were two earthquakes. One was a 25-mire, but the next one was so much bigger. It was a 125-mire. It was five times as big, which is totally intuitive because we converted the logarithmic scale to a linear scale while dealing with the, the big numbers and small numbers by introducing a unit such as the millimire and the megamire. Is there any downside to what I'm talking about other than the fact that we will have helped people better understand intuitively how dangerous earthquakes could be so that perhaps they might be more prepared and think more about it, have more water, actually get down under their fucking table when their houses start to shake? I'm sold. I'm all in. You're sold and you're all in. No, I thought it'd be a little bit more of a fight. What? Fixed decibels. Oh, we're not going to fix decibels on this show. Thank you, sir. Good point. It is also true, as a man in the front row has helpfully pointed out, that the that that decibels for sound are also logarithmic. But you know what? That doesn't bother me because when I get that wrong, my house doesn't fall off its foundation. <laughs> Uh, one last question. I know they say you're not supposed to just run out of your house screaming. But instinctively, that does feel right. Thoughts? Well, it depends on the kind of house you live in, you know. Um, the official recommendation from the United States Geological Survey is to drop cover and hold on because most people get hurt or even die from, you know, running outside and falling down the stairs or getting hit by stuff that comes falling off the roof. And so um, you drop cover under a sturdy table um, and then you're safe because houses usually don't collapse. But then there's things like, you know, soft story houses, old houses. I live in a house that is eaten up by termites, I think. So <laughs> when I felt the quake, I did not drop cover. Hold on, to be honest. So what we, might, what we might be dealing with is the the Memorial Meyer earthquake scale. <laughs> so it does feel like there's these two competing ideas online. One is the official recommendations, which says the most likely thing you're going to do is fuck yourself up by falling down, breaking an ankle, landing on some glass, getting hit by debris. One woman hit her head and broke her neck, falling down during Northridge. Another woman fell out of a hotel window. That's a bad fucking drop. But... Uh, <laughs> But so they say, just get down, because all else being equal, the majority of houses will stay up, so the majority of people who just get down will be fine. But in the event that you're worried about your house falling down, what are you supposed to do? Well, <laughs> if the house collapses on you, then there's not much. You can do whatever you want. You can do whatever you want! <laughs> um, one last... No, but that, that being said, I mean, the drop cover and hold on thing does make a lot of sense. If everybody did that, that would save a lot of lives, probably, and... and Alright, thank you. One final semi-inappropriate question. Uh, you seem to be a hot seismologist. Has that impacted any of your science? <laughs> <laughs>
about anything. Yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't be here if I hadn't slept my way up. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Caltech seismologist Menendrine Meyer, thank you so much. Hey, don't go anywhere. There's more of Love It or Leave It coming up. Love It or Leave It is brought to you by Fast Growing Trees. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the U.S.? You can grow lemon, avocado, olive, or fig trees inside your home. On top of the wide variety of houseplants available, Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee, they offer free plant consultation forever. Mike Pence should have gotten one of those after the election day. <laughs> <laughs> the experts at Fast Growing Trees curate thousands of plants for all climates, locations, and needs. Available 24-7, you can talk to a plant expert about your soil type, landscape designs, and how best to take care of your plants. The point is, I may not have a green thumb, but that's why Fast Growing Trees is perfect for me, because it makes it so easy. Right now, they have some of the best deals online, like up to half off on select plants. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when using the code LOVEIT at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at fastgrowingtrees.com using the code LOVEIT at checkout. Fastgrowingtrees.com, code LOVEIT. Offer is valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions apply. Next up, we were in Austin with Shay Serrano, Emily Heller, and Evan Smith. Emily Heller delivered one of the all-time best rants in the history of Love It or Leave It, a status earned by few, the one <laughs> one also previously earned by Akilah Hughes. Yeah, true. I, I think I know the one you're talking about. <laughs> but but uh, So Emily, Emily went off on LuLaRoe and multi-level marketing, and it was truly one of the best rants I've ever heard, made better by the fact that we did Test Barbecue during the show. Uh, best episode ever. <laughs> Barbecue flavor. It has landed on Lula Row leggings. I have no idea what this is about. Cannot wait to learn more. Emily, take us away. Well, as you can hear, a lot of people in this audience know what Lula Row leggings are, right? So, Lula Row is a multi level marketing company, also known as a pyramid scheme. They recruit women, primarily women, uh, especially very religious women who are expected not to have jobs, who are expected to stay home with their kids, and they tell them that it's a good investment to start selling these ugly fucking leggings <laughs> to their close friends and to recruit their friends to also sell the leggings and that that is a way to earn some extra money on the side. Uh, a report came out recently that over 100 uh, women have filed for bankruptcy after selling LuLaRoe leggings. Um, and all of the studies that have been done about multi-level marketing show that the most conservative estimate is that 99.1% of people who participate in a multi-level marketing company lose money doing so. Now, for reference, the number of cisgender women who report that they are able to orgasm simply from intercourse with no clitoral stimulation is about 18%. Which means you are 
18 times more likely to come from a dude just sticking it in than you are to make money from an MLM. Now, part of the reason why we don't talk about the failure rate of multi-level marketing companies is because just like the female orgasm, these companies make you feel like it's your fault if it doesn't work out for you. That is their whole business model is to tell the people who have a statistical impossibility of succeeding at the thing that they signed up for that the reason they are failing is because they didn't try hard enough. And then they don't talk about their failures because they've convinced all of the people that they know and trust to get on board too. They've leveraged their personal relationships, which for women is one of the most valuable resources we have. They take advantage of any small glimmer of hope at a better life that women have, and they've exploited it so that people like Betsy DeVos, who made most of her money from Amway, a multi-level marketing company, can buy their way into our government and ruin our public schools. Obviously, this infuriates me. And I know that there's a lot of shame associated with women who feel like they can't tell other people that they failed at multi-level marketing even though it's not their fault. But what I want to encourage all of these women to do, because you all know them, there might be some of you in the crowd tonight, everyone that I've talked to knows someone who has been involved in an MLM, and very few of us are talking about them. What I think we need to do is to convert these social hierarchies, these pyramids that we have built for these bullshit companies, and instead teach people about the clit. <laughs> if you want hope for a better life, you'll get way more out of it than you will from selling LuLaRoe leggings. Don't go anywhere. This is Love It or Leave It, and there's more on the way. Did you know that women make up 56% of law students? That's grounds for bragging rights at the dinner table for your conservative uncle who still thinks women belong in the kitchen. It's clear that the future of the legal field is female. So why are so many legal podcasts and reviews authored by men? Hi, I'm Leah Littman. I'm Kate Shaw. And with Melissa Murray, we are the hosts of Strict Scrutiny. Each week, we break down the latest headlines and biggest legal questions facing our country through the lens of diverse voices to give you expert views you won't hear anywhere else. Strict Scrutiny is your guide to the Supreme Court. New episodes drop every Monday, plus bonuses whenever the Supreme Court takes away another one of our rights. Make sure to subscribe to Strict Scrutiny wherever you get your podcasts. Next up. <laughs> Akilah, why the fuck are you here? <laughs> no, no, 
Don't say that. All right. No, I, you you're belong here. To here. laugh a little bit to keep people interested. <laughs> no, there's. This is more content. This is not just a clip show. This is you and me having a great time. A great time talking about barbecue, multi-level marketing scams, rich people, poor people. <laughs> Speaking of uh, the yawning chasm between rich and poor, yeah. Adam Conover came on earlier this year and delivered a fantastic rant about the housing crisis in California. It was fantastic. An episode with Adam Conover, Megan Gailey, and Demi Adejuibe. And it was a genuine highlight. Yeah, I posted it to my Insta story. Sick. <laughs> Sick. <laughs> Tight, man. Good job. <laughs> California housing crisis, Adam Conover, take it away. Hello, this is going to start local, but it's going to get national, all right? Holy uh, shit. Uh, like here we go, here we go. Uh, the homeless count numbers came out in Los Angeles. Uh, this year they went up by 16%. There are 16% more people living on the streets in Los Angeles than last year. 60,000 people living on the streets of Los Angeles. And the thing is that uh, everyone who runs the city has been saying for years that there's, this is an emergency. It's an emergency. But they, and then they proceed to not treat it like an emergency. Like, a regu- like when there's a fire, they fucking send a fire brigade. They don't like put a task force together to study the problem for a couple years. You know what I mean? People are dying on the streets. And the fucked up part is that we know how to solve homelessness. It's called permanent supportive housing. You put people in housing first. They sort out their problems why they're there. It's been proven to work. And we all fucking voted for it. Three years ago, right, 2016, on that horrible election day, the one bright spot was we voted for measure HHH. It, got, it, it appropriated $1.2 billion. We taxed ourselves to build permanent supportive housing. Two and a half years later, how many units have they built? Fucking zero. Zero. They say that this year they hope they can build 1,500 units. There's 60,000 people on the street, and the mayor's fucking nowhere on it. He's no, he didn't even give a press conference about this. He tweeted at Steve Lopez, the LA Times columnist, and said, your, your column about me failing at my job was too mean, but he didn't do a press conference about this. And people blame it on NIMBYs. You can blame it on NIMBYs all you want, except the mayor could be out there cracking the whip, saying, let's build those units. Fuck the NIMBYs. Let's build them anyway. He's not doing that. Now let's get to the state level, all right? So we've got a democratic supermajority in California, right? We can pass anything that we want. A week ago, maybe 2 weeks ago, every single housing bill failed to even come up for a vote, all right? There was a bill to have more dense housing, there was a bill for uh, to allow tenants to continue organizing, there was a, a bill to allow rent control to be expanded. It all failed. Again, the governor pushed none of it. It was all nothing, right? It was it was a complete and total failure. And so so the point of this is that like we can't just assume, hey, let's just elect Democrats and everything is going to be fine, right? We actually have to follow through on the fucking policies. Like if the Democratic Party thinks it's the party of protecting the needy and the most vulnerable, it needs to fucking do it. Hey, don't go anywhere. There's more of Love It or Leave It coming up. Did you know that women make up 56% of law students? That's grounds for bragging rights at a dinner table for your conservative uncle who still thinks women belong in the kitchen. It's clear that the future of the legal field is female. So why are so many legal podcasts and reviews authored by men? Hi, I'm Leah Littman. I'm Kate Shaw. And with Melissa Murray, we are the hosts of Strict Scrutiny. Each week, we break down the latest headlines and biggest legal questions facing our country through the lens of diverse voices to give you expert views you won't hear anywhere else. Strict Scrutiny is your guide to the Supreme Court. New episodes drop every Monday, plus bonuses whenever the Supreme Court takes away another one of our rights. Make sure to subscribe to Strict Scrutiny wherever you get your podcasts. (laughs) 
Hey, Kayla. Yeah, what's up? What up, dude? You won't believe what we're going to play next. Oh, my God. Wait, <laughs> what is it? What? I like this. This is like a cool radio show. We're playing the hits. <laughs> uh, Casey Kasem. <laughs> yes. Uh, so uh, we had James Adomian, Kieran Deal, and Jenny Yang on a great episode. And uh, James Adomian took on the role, embodied the role <laughs> of Bernie Sanders. Oh, I bet it sounded good. <laughs> bet we're about to find out <laughs> if it sounded good. Did it sound good? Did let's sound fi- good? Let's, let's find <laughs> out. <laughs> for those listening at home, you're not going to believe who's joining us. For those of you here, you're also not going to believe who's here because they're here for real. Thank you. He's the junior senator from the state of Vermont and a oh candidate God. for president of the United States. Please welcome Senator Bernie Sanders. Thank oh you. Oh sure. Thank you. By the way, fun fact, senator from Vermont is the only thing I'm junior at. <laughs> I'm getting booed by someone to my left. That's ironic. I think that she thought Bernie Sanders was really here because her I head... I am really here. What's the problem? That's what I'm saying because her head whipped around to look for the door not realizing he was already on the stage. Since 2012, Grover Norquist, a man who looks like Horatio Sands, read too many YouTube comments, has asked Republican candidates for office to sign his pledge, committing them to his core values. No new taxes, no elimination of tax deductions, no talking when Big Bang Theory is on. And since I consider myself the Grover Norquist of people who are physically attracted to the angry bagel boss man, Travis, (laughs) you son of a bitch. To clarify, if you are listening at home, that is a prank caught. <laughs> I Sometimes th- my wife Jane pranks me with some of my my speech cards, and I will mean to say the top one percent of the top ten percent, and she puts in a, a joke line, so it says the top two percent of the top twelve percent, and it throws <laughs> off the math by a very small percentage. So during the primary, we're starting our own pledge, pinning presidential candidates down on the issues that matter most in a segment we're calling Queen for a Day. (laughs) Senator Sanders has agreed to be the fifth candidate to face the gauntlet. Are you ready? (laughs) Okay, sounds ready. Sure. Sounds ready. First question, on day one, do you pledge to eliminate daylight savings and never let the American people see dark before 5 p.m. again? Well, I thank you for this question, John. For far too long, American families have not been able to save as much daylight as their parents and their grandparents were. I think we need a mass movement for people to come together to be able to change the regulation of daylight and, yes, force the Wall Street bankers to allow us to save as much daylight as we need. Elizabeth Warren has introduced a plan to break up the big tech companies. How many accidental reply-all emails would a member of your cabinet need to send before you fired them? I see what you did. There was a very enticing preamble that had nothing to do with the question. Next question. As president, will you give Michael Phelps an official our bad about the time we got all mad at him and made him go to rehab for taking a bong rip after winning like 100 gold medals at the Olympics? Look, I think that Michael Phelps ran a clean race. (laughs) I admire him for that. We disagree on a lot of political topics, and I've always been more of a fan of the butterfly stroke. 
You're a I disagree aquatically with Michael Phelps. But I think as Americans and, you know, citizens of the world, we can come together and figure out how to knock our ears on the side of the pool when we have water in our ears. Yes. <laughs> I'm so inspired right now. So you're a no-nonsense sort of guy? Oh, look, I, I, I can handle about four or five percent nonsense. <laughs> when someone claims to have read a book but actually just listened to the audiobook, does it count? I didn't, that was, I, that was, I couldn't hear. It sounded to me, you were so fast, it sounded like the honey, not Cheerios, bee. That's correct. Uh, <laughs> it's day one of a Bernie Sanders presidency. What should America do with all the people who are really into paintball? Well, paintball has its place. I think that paintball should be tightly regulated. <laughs> I've been criticized for being, for a leftist, a little bit too in bed with the large paintball gun manufacturers. <laughs> but I will remind you, I got a D minus rating from the National Paintball Association. <laughs> yeah. They have no place in my inauguration. What should the default mustard be when someone says with mustard, yellow mustard or spicy brown mustard? John, I treasure the ability to answer this question that you have given me. I think it's a privilege. When I think of spicy brown mustard, I and a lot of Americans think of Grey Poupon, which immediately makes me think of two, you know, Bentleys, to members of the 1%, probably the top 10% of the top 1%, handing spicy brown mustard from window to window. In my view, and when I say that, what I always mean is, that's the way I see it, and therefore, that's the way it is. In my view, yellow mustard is the only kind of mustard that anybody needs. What kind of Jew from Brooklyn is gonna come on this stage and tell me that yellow mustard is the mustard? Well, let me finish. A little too much fucking Vermont for you, let sir. Let me finish. Okay, if that you're gonna try to turn, if you're gonna try to turn Brooklyn against Vermont, then maybe you should. I've, I've got news. You got a place in the Hillary Clinton 2016 campaign. <laughs> I don't care for mustard myself. I eat entirely oatmeal. <laughs> You're texting with your vice president, Andrew Yang. You sent a really funny joke. Would you rather he writes the word ha 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 or do that iMessage thing where you can add a ha ha bubble to the text? Oh, sure. If you double click on a thing and it says you got an exclamation point or there's a heart or a ha ha ha, a couple of little things. If Andrew Yang, and I am open to the possibility he could be my vice president, because we might enter a divided convention. If the Democratic establishment forces Andrew Yang on their reluctant nominee, Bernie Sanders, in a divided, contentious convention. If Andrew Yang is my Lyndon Johnson, then yes, I think that it's entirely appropriate to double-click on an iMessage. However, he will never be able to communicate with me that way because I use a jitterbug and I am proud of it. <laughs> Rank the Spider-Men, Tom Holland, Andrew Garfield, Tobey Maguire. 
Well, okay, for, there's only one Spider-Man uh, that matters to me, and that is the Prince Spider-Man. The Prince Spider-Man, I don't go in for a lot of the, uh, you know, the, the big motion pictures. I like <laughs> Spider-Man when you can see him on the page and you go, there he is, he's swinging, I believe it. I don't like seeing, oh, he's swinging, I don't believe it. <laughs> I'm sorry, that's incorrect. The correct answer is Andrew Garfield never played Spider-Man. That's not real. Well, I thought you said James Garfield. <laughs> James Garfield, the former president, did briefly play Spider-Man. Next question, Senator Sanders. Taking clothes right, <laughs> taking clothes right from the... There's just no reason to cough right in the mic, Senator. And yet, <laughs> for far too long... <laughs> The elite of this country has been encouraging us to cough off microphone and therefore stifle exactly how bad things have gotten. I see. Next question, taking clothes... <laughs> you take that answer. <laughs> That's a good answer. I think that was good. That makes a lot of sense to me. What I'm learning is that if I bullshit long enough, you will move on to the next question. I wish that Rachel Maddow would have applied those rules at the last debate. What's wrong with that? <laughs> I'm keeping it light and easy. I get a whoa. Sorry, Andrew Dice Clay has grabbed the mic. Can we remove Andrew Dice Clay? Let me get him out of here. Get, out get of him here. out of here. You're a real Next. Ball. <laughs> Next question. Taking clothes right from the dryer instead of putting them away, lazy or efficient? I remember in America when Franklin Roosevelt was president. When a dryer was a fantastic luxury. And when we had a dryer, we would not only carry the clothes and lovingly put them inside the dryer. And we didn't have our own dryer. There was a community dryer. How in old are you? <laughs> oh, well, you remember the main? Personally, I'm no. a little bit older You're than that. You're a little older than the main. Look, let me put it this way. I grew up with William Jennings Bryan. Like he was a boy while you were a boy. You I'm grew up together. I'm slightly older than the concept of a nickel. Well, look, if you're in a hurry, throw your socks at the dryer. <laughs> Next question, and you need to be honest with the American people. Who would win in a no-holds-barred street fight? You, Joe Biden, or Guy Pierce in character as old Waylon from Prometheus? Well, Prometheus is a fantastic, if lopsided film, <laughs> imagining the possibility that human beings are descended from a higher alien culture, and I have to respect the vision of, it was Ridley Scott, if I'm, yeah. Mm -hmm. I have to respect right. the vision of Ridley Scott. I think it's, a, in fact, I think it's a greater work than some people say <laughs> Gladiator was. Correct. But, <laughs> look, I know how to handle Biden and Guy Pierce in the arena, if you will. You gotta headbutt Guy Pierce and go for Biden's throat. That's exactly what I'm gonna do. <laughs> You gotta be, gotta be me, and I will bite. I will bite. If, it ha if, I, if it's just me and no rules, I will bite Joe Biden. You'll bite him. I will be biting Biden. Do you have a specific part of him you'd go for first? Well, I don't want to hurt the guy too much. I'm going to bite him on his hand. <laughs> You're going to bite him in his hair? I said hand, hand. son of a oh, bitch. Sorry. <laughs> Final question. Finally. Why won't the real Bernie Sanders come on this show? Let me say this, and when I say that, what I mean is, I'm going to say something. <laughs> I am not opposed to coming on the show. 
However, I noticed that it tends to happen live at the Improv Comedy Club here on Melrose in Los Angeles. And I'm more of a comedy store guy. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, give it up for Senator Bernie Sanders. Hey, Akila. Yeah. That sounded pretty good. That sounded good. <laughs> <laughs> Good for him. We got a professional operation going. Mm -hmm. Next up, also at our Austin show with Shea Serrano, Emily Heller, and Evan Smith from the Texas Tribune, we played a very important game. Ooh. All right. I think it was uh, a game that really made people think. Peekaboo. Yeah, we played Peekaboo. <laughs> Clue. Yeah, we played... We played uh, Monopoly. Yeah, we played Parcheesi. <laughs> no, we played a game. We asked the question that's on everybody's mind, which is... Should Beto stand on that? Mm, mm. It's like my neck. <laughs> Step on my neck, Beto. Ow. <laughs> All right. Listen, we gotta, we're going to play a game called Unpack What Aquila Wants in Love. <laughs> a strong foot. Oh, God. <laughs> Don't send me any messages about this. I won't respond. Wild. Texas's own Beto O'Rourke. He's like if the English teacher who played acoustic guitar in class ran for president. The presidential race is heating up and everyone is picking their angle. Jay Inslee is standing up to climate change. Elizabeth Warren is standing up against big business. And Beto O'Rourke is standing on top of things. We love Beto. Who recently put out a particularly aggressive climate change plan himself. But he also loves standing on things. Here's Beto standing on a minivan. Here's Beto standing on a tree stump. Here's Beto standing on a countertop, but then kneeling to get closer to someone instead of not standing on the countertop. <laughs> Honestly, the biggest threat to his candidacy is a ceiling fan. <laughs> So we thought we'd dive a little deeper into this important issue with a game we're calling Should Beto Stand on That? I will read a scenario and the panelists are going to debate whether or not Beto should stand on the thing I'm describing. After some intense debate, I will decide who wins each round. Somehow. Beto is in Iowa. Two weeks before the caucus and a group of progressive bikers are debating who they should caucus for. Some like Warren's detailed proposals. Others think it's time to give Mike Gravel a shot. Beto senses an opportunity, but there is only one clear place to stand, on top of a beautifully customized Harley-Davidson motorcycle. One biker indicates to go for it, but another off to the side furrows his brow and scowls menacingly. Should Beto stand on that motorcycle? It's a, no, terrible, no. it's a terrible idea. It's a terrible idea. I've watched enough Sons of Anarchy episodes... To know that you do not stand on a motorcycle. However, as soon as I said that, I remember I've seen enough Mission Impossible movies to know that you do stand on a motorcycle. <laughs> so now I'm stuck. Now I'm yeah. stuck. Is it the type of thing where, like, if you're in a biker gang and someone stands on your motorcycle, they get your jacket? <laughs> it's like some kind of power move. Like a Pee Wee Herman situation? <laughs> <laughs> on the bike in the park? Yeah, so that's my fear. My fear is Beto stands on the Harley-Davidson motorcycle. It falls over. All the bikers come out and see it. They drag 
Beto into the bar. Right when Beto is about to get destroyed, he has to get up on the bar and put on a pair of some sort of shoes that I realize at this point I've never looked up since I saw it as a child and dance on top of the bar, a crazy dance that appealed to me as a child so much, I'm now at this very moment realizing it was the moment I became gay. (laughs) (laughs) So you're all wrong. He should stand on it. I, I did. Think, that's what I said. Oh, Emily was right. Yes. You were both wrong. I think we should. I think we need to clarify, though, what type of stance this is. Because if you're going two feet on the seat, no good. You've got to go foot on the seat, foot on the handlebars <laughs> to really deliver. That is it. cool. I was picturing yeah. it wrong, but that's because I don't think I could have pulled it off. You're right. You got to get one foot on the handlebars, one foot on the seat, kind of a straddle. Yeah, yeah. Very yeah. confident, a masculine position atop that bike. Toes on the nose. Hell yeah. <laughs> it's a balance issue, though. He's going to fall off that bike. So Evan bringing some hard, unbiased, journalistic... Unbiased, nonpartisan... Integrity to this debate, and I he's, appreciate that as well. He's going to knock that bike over. They're going to beat his ass. That's what's going to happen, unfortunately. Okay, okay, okay. All right. It's a draw. Next one. <laughs> Beto's in New Hampshire in one of those small woodsy towns where they probably elect a golden retriever as mayor. Unfortunately, their golden retriever mayor passed away just a few days before and Beto is attending the memorial service. The crowd calls for Beto to speak at a pet cemetery. Unfortunately, there is only one place to stand atop the newly carved gravestone of Mayor Pepper Chuzalot. <laughs> he hesitates, but the crowd urges him to climb on. Should Beto stand on the gravestone of their dead dog mayor? <laughs> I vote, I vote yes. Sure. You guys are true wild cards, and you are underestimating the people who are clearly are numerous enough that they make the bumper stickers that say, I have a dog and I vote. We know they vote. Don't stand on the dog grave. Those people will come after you. I think you have to do it, and then that's the beginning of a new scary movie. That's how, that's how <laughs> Pet Cemetery. The new one starts. Th- that, that's some live free or die stuff right there, right? Here's the, the saddest thing. Uh, zombie Mayor Choose-A-Lot just got 65,000 donors and will be on the debate stage. Uh. <laughs> Emily is correct. <laughs> what? Can't stand on that tombstone. I'm sorry. I don't make the rules. In Texas, we stand on tombstones. Evan, back me up. Seriously, <laughs> yes. What a place, huh? This is some wild country. Right. Final question. Beto's campaign has brought him to the heart of Bangladesh, where he thought he'd have to go to clear his head and work on some poetry for his live journal. Deep amongst the mangroves in the Bay of Bengal, Beto stumbles upon a group of superdelegates colluding in secret to discuss who to rig the primary in favor of. They're about to throw their support behind the unbeatable Eric Swalwell. When Beto realizes he only has one last shot, he looks around for something to stand on when he sees it. A sleeping tiger, one of just 200 remaining inside the Sunderbands. Time is running out. Should Beto stand on top of this graceful, endangered creature? If y'all say yes after the, we did the tombstone thing, like, this is, a, this is unfair. This is, because I think, I'm going to vote yes again. Stand on the tiger and fucking ride it like a surfboard through the city <laughs> while you're speaking. Right. Compelling, Evan. I, I say yes, but he has to uh, do air drumming to Eye of the Tiger, actually, when he does it. <laughs> interesting, interesting. I'm going to say no. <laughs> because 
Think about the word should. Does that imply a moral imperative or a utilitarian imperative based on his own needs? At this point, I feel like he's got to put the needs of the world against his own presidency. We've been up here for like, I don't know, 15 minutes now. <laughs> and every time you put the mic to your face, I have no idea what's going to come out. <laughs> I have no idea. That's at the beauty all. of it. That's the beauty of it. <laughs> it's an interesting problem, right? I mean, I've thought about it. And I think it's the kind of thing where <laughs> Beto will be at a crossroads because it's no longer choosing, do I do what it takes to win or do I go back to Texas? It's do I take a chance on a surefire way to become president or do I die at the hands of this tiger? <laughs> and here's the thing about Beto. He runs like he has nothing to lose. <laughs> <laughs> so I say, Beto, you ride that tiger. Yes. Yeah. Bonus question. Here's a photo of Beto talking to a large crowd of students. He's on a staircase overlooking them all, but then on that staircase, he is also standing on a tiny little apple box. <laughs> <laughs> Why? And like this is an episode of 24, I will say... Can we enhance that? All right. Should Beto be standing on that apple box? You can tell by his face that he didn't know there were going to be people still higher than him, and he's right. panicked right now. Yeah. He has no idea what to do. He's like, get me more of these boxes. Bring me 200 of these boxes. I've got to get up. <laughs> Unless there's somehow an easier way to raise my elevation in this room, but I'm not seeing one. Boxes. Only boxes. <laughs> Evan? No, he should not be on that box. <laughs> it really doesn't make sense. It makes no sense at all. He could step off that box and step up one stair. Right. And he'd be at the and, exact and he, <laughs> same height. And he'd be taller. He would be taller. Yeah. I mean, at this point, it's just weird, Right. Unless he was giving a speech where he was explaining how they shoot Tom Cruise movies. <laughs> oh, that's a good joke. <laughs> and that's, should Beto stand on that? Next up, when we were in Minnesota, mm -hmm. we had an awesome show with Lieutenant Governor Peggy Flanagan, Guy Branham, and Anna Marie Cox. This was also the show where Amy Klobuchar joined, Senator Amy Klobuchar. She was a great sport. Mm -hmm. I was going to ask her a question about the comb thing. But we're having such a nice time that I um, chickened out. Yeah, that's fair. It was a fantastic episode, and one of the highlights was a rant about Peggy Flanagan and an issue very close to her heart. <laughs> that's so... You can... <laughs> Shame on you people. For the people at home, I do want to say that it almost landed on Minnesota State Fair, but landed on a serious issue, and they moaned like somebody changed a channel from the Avengers to a documentary. Shame on you. LG, you have the floor. It has landed on MMIW. So I want to just say for a moment that I really enjoy the Minnesota State Fair. So I'm sorry I have to bum all you out by talking about missing and murdered indigenous women. Um, but here's the deal. So I like... No, you can get it. Can oh, I stand I, up? up? Okay. So, get up. So I saw Ani DeFranco here when I was like 19. 
I'm like fulfilling a dream right now. Um, uh, but so, hi. I'm an indigenous woman. I'm Ojibwe. I am enrolled at the, the White Earth Reservation. And um, I still exist. And right now, we have an epidemic in North America of missing and murdered indigenous women. 84% of Native women, myself included, will experience violence in their lifetime. On some reservations, Native women die by murder at 10 times the national average. You should be horrified. And in Canada this week, they just came out with a report on missing and murdered indigenous women, and they called it genocide. And that is exactly what it is. And part of the reason, my friend Crystal Echohawk recently said, she's like, invisibility is not a superpower for Native people. It is a threat to our existence. When the only images that you see of indigenous people are Chief Wahoo, the Washington football team, don't even get me started about that racist bullshit. You see Pocahontas Halloween costumes that sexualize Native women, that over-sexualize Native women, so you don't have to see the humanity in any of us. All of the images that we are bombarded with every single day dehumanize Native people. Even in our Minnesota state capitol, where in the House chamber there is a carving of a skinny Native man and a Native woman dutifully sitting at his feet. And in the Senate chamber, there's a gigantic painting of a Native American man, shirtless, in a loincloth, which really looks like a diaper. So, Senate, get it together. But all of these things are changing. They are changing because Native women, who we know, I know, have been leaders since time immemorial, now have a seat at the table. <laughs> Congresswoman Deb Holland, yeah, who's awesome, from New Mexico, is Native. The other Native woman who was elected last year, Congresswoman Sharice Davids, who's Ho-Chunk, and a mixed martial arts fighter. And this is why it matters, y'all. It matters that we have women, Native women, at the table making these decisions. But also, we recently, and it also matters that we are showing this example. I'll sit down in a second. But I'm like, I'm fired up. There's a young woman named Rosalie Fish. Rosalie Fish is a high school track star from Washington State. She's a young Native woman. 
And she ran in all the state championship with MMIW painted on her leg. She also had a red handprint over her mouth, like this, as though it, she was being grabbed from behind and attacked and silenced. It is jarring, and it should be. But she ran, and she won, and she is the state champion, and she is an example of everything that we should be lifting up and everything we should be doing. And this session in Minnesota, we passed the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women's Task Force bill so we can start to investigate this issue. We can bring solutions from the community, and we can stop this epidemic. And it was because of the leadership of Native women, of great-grandma Mary Lyons, and all these Native women who came forward to tell their stories. And it's hard. It is hard to be a Native woman, and it is hard to be invisible. And it is hard when people think you're supposed to look some way, like I'm supposed to be Cher in the half-breed video with the big, you know, like rhinestone bikini coming in on a horse and a giant headdress. I don't look like that. You shouldn't, you don't have to look like you're going to Coachella to qualify as being a Native American woman. But when things get hard, I look out the window of my office at the Christopher Columbus statue on the front lawn of the Capitol, and I'm like, what's up now, Chris? I'm in the house. And that's my rant. Thank you. Pretty good. Wow. Don't go anywhere. This is Love It or Leave It, and there's more on the way. Did you know that women make up 56% of law students? That's grounds for bragging rights at the dinner table for your conservative uncle who still thinks women belong in the kitchen. It's clear that the future of the legal field is female. So why are so many legal podcasts and reviews authored by men? Hi, I'm Leah Littman. I'm Kate Shaw. And with Melissa Murray, we are the hosts of Strict Scrutiny. Each week, we break down the latest headlines and biggest legal questions facing our country through the lens of diverse voices to give you expert views you won't hear anywhere else. Strict Scrutiny is your guide to the Supreme Court. New episodes drop every Monday, plus bonuses whenever the Supreme Court takes away another one of our rights. Make sure to subscribe to Strict Scrutiny wherever you get your podcasts. Next up. Next up. This is a dark time in this country. Oh, man. But there are things that can give us hope. On an episode with Kara Swisher, Rami Youssef, Kara Brown, and Jay Inslee, called Hot Inslee Summer, because we love that. We love that search optimization. It is good. I found something that gave me hope. <laughs> For a better future. This was also the episode where Jay Inslee uh, decided, as part of Queen for a Day, to close Harry Potter to build affordable housing. Oh, yes. And it was such an unfair question, and he took such shit online that he actually had to like retract it. Yeah. I mean, but, you know, don't, don't mess with... I want to say Hogwarts. <laughs> <laughs> Don't do it. Do they have like a mascot as Hogwarts or is it just the houses? I, I don't think they have a collective mascot. Well, that seems weird for a school. <laughs> just want to put it out there. Real. <laughs> I'm not trying to give notes to J.K. Rowling, but come on. What school have you ever been to where there's just four teams <laughs> and everyone's paying the same tuition? It doesn't exist. It's also just, it's also pretty crazy. It's like they all go to the school and they get sorted into these categories and they just know from childhood, oh, 
Those are the really good ones. <laughs> These are the fine ones. These are the evil ones. Yeah. It's and then like, like you get in there and you're like, well, I guess I have pride in being evil. Like I know that my alumni are, you know, Voldemort and others. <laughs> <laughs> I got sorted into something called Ravenclaw. That's not right. Obviously, I'm a main character of a movie, so I'm Gryffindor. It is. That's the other thing, too. It's so insulting to just be like, so we got two kinds of people. All right. We got main characters, good and evil, and then the rest of you. Yes. Good job being in the rest of the houses <laughs> at the school that has, again, no mask on. So there's no unity whatsoever. You just go in fighting. You have Slytherin. Yes. Uh, Elijah is pointing out that Slytherin does exist in the real world, and it's a place... <laughs> Magical place called Duke <laughs> University. <laughs> That's true. As a UK fan, I stand. It has landed on Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And this is where I will leave us because I believe we should go out on a high note. And that high note will be Brad Pitt's abdominal muscles. Uh, <laughs> here's the thing Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I loved it. Okay. But Brad Pitt's abdominal muscles are a simulation, but go ahead. Yes. <laughs> you good? They look so real. Yeah. Shut up, Kara Brown. Uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is good. It is a good film. I loved it. I loved it. I was in. It was old Hollywood and movie theaters and Margot Robbie, who is a great actress, who doesn't get recognized as one because she's so pretty. And, but, it had Leonardo DiCaprio and Brad Pitt in a buddy comedy for a very long time. And there is a moment in that film where Brad Pitt parkours to the roof of a building and removes his shirt. <laughs> Brad Pitt is 55 years old. All right? Through the dot-com bubble, Brad Pitt had abdominal muscles. <laughs> Through the bursting of that bubble, he had those muscles. Through the launching of a war of choice in Iraq, there were those rippling abdominal muscles. Through a financial crisis, there have been those muscles. From Thelma and Louise to the film Troy, which was supposed to be his last gasp of being super hot, a movie that came out when I was in high school. <laughs> Brad Pitt's abs have been there for us. I know that this is a dark time. And I know that cities have taken a lot of shit from Republicans, that somehow it's acceptable to insult liberal bastions in this country, that rural and suburban America is sacrosanct and untouchable. But you can shit on those coastal elites. You can, you can call them weak and silly and soft. Brad Pitt is a 55-year-old man with a fucking perfect body. <laughs> All right? People in Los Angeles are tough and disciplined, and it's time we got the respect that we deserved. <laughs> Brad Pitt has maintained a visible six-pack for basically, literally, 40 fucking years. We can defeat Trump. We can do it. And that's our show. Yeah, wow. Akila, I can't think of a better use of your many talents <laughs> than sitting here and reacting to me reading summaries of clips 
Yeah, I gotta tell you, my skill set lies in clip shows. <laughs> do you think that we should have thought about the fact that when once we asked you to do this, that maybe perhaps we could have found a, one of the many fantastic clips with Akila? Yeah, you know, maybe the rant about how dogs shouldn't be cops. I thought that was a pretty good one. Nope. <laughs> Not good Didn't enough. Didn't make the cut. <laughs> Worst of rants. <laughs> I like the part where you talked about your vaguely violent sexual fantasy about Beto O'Rourke stabbing on your neck. I like that part, too. I like that part, too. I think that Beto should keep standing on things, take up as much space as possible. Okay, wait, what else did we even talk about? What did we talk about? Barely anything. <laughs> Good point. That was my favorite part, was when I did a lot of background mm-hmoms and laughter. <laughs> it's always a highlight for me as a listener. <laughs> anyway, thank you all for making it all the way to this part. Mm-hmm. Of the clip show. Wow. This is just us. You, me, Akila, The and true fans. It. Yes. <laughs> I uh, appreciate it. Pundits right here next to me. There should be some light, love it, or leave it music behind this to make it all quite palatable. We're about to go to the credits. But before we do, hey, thanks a lot. Yeah, thanks, guys. Wow. Thanks for listening. Thanks, Travis. <laughs> Travis just said eat shit. Thanks, Kyle. Kyle brings a certain kind of uh, equanimity and joy to the recording process every day here at Crooked Media. That's real. Elijah left in the middle of the recording. <laughs> Elisa said she was busy. <laughs> Elijah's back now and Elijah's scandalized. Back. <laughs> End of episode. Love or Leave It is a product of Crooked Media. It is written and produced by me, John Lovett, Elisa Gutierrez, Lee Eisenberg, and our head writer. What's his name? It's Travis Hell. Oh, yeah. You remember him. Tug? Plus our writers, Jocelyn Kaufman, Alicia Carroll, and Peter Miller. Bill Lance is our editor, and Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Our theme song is written and performed by Sure Sure. Thanks to our designers, Jesse McLean and Jamie Skeel, for creating and running all of our visuals, which you can't see because this is a podcast. And to our digital producers, Nara Malconian and Yale Freed, for filming and editing videos each week so you can. <laughs>